Anyway, so tonight uh, we're um, we're moving forward in dependent origination, the lengths of dependent origination, uh, the lengths of dependent origination, and it's uh, something that it's a length that I am particularly fond of because it's really a central feature of my own practice and has been since my uh, earliest days on the cushion, and that is uh, the the link of becoming, becoming. And I love the word becoming because it's a verb. It's not became, right? Uh, so it, it doesn't show a solidity of what a form. It shows a process. It shows a verb. It shows an ongoing, uh, an ongoing circumstantial set of conditions necessary for us to keep manifesting, to keep showing up, to keep holding uh, center stage, so to speak, and to believe in the sense of I, me, and mine. We package the consciousness so that all the mirrors shine back, reminding us that we're here. And we have so many mirrors facing us, in which I'll be explaining in, in a minute or two. That's a bed bud bike, by the way. <laughs> we have so many mirrors facing us uh, that uh, that it's very a very fast becoming. We're, we're reminded of ourselves at every turn of events. And therefore we feel as if we are a steady state. Uh, almost as if you would uh, with a movie that uh, in the old days when they had the flickering uh, images on the screen that convinced us that it was a single movement, not single not single uh, pictures in sequence, so too does this consciousness that flashes our identification moment after moment portray us not as becoming but as, as here, as, as uh, solid state creatures. And the reason I love this uh, particular avenue, uh, this link, is because it really gives itself over towards looking and investigating at, at, uh, at something that is very not only relevant, obviously, but also very accessibly relevant. That is, we get a sense of how this thing um, manifests and how it moves and what it feeds upon and how it, uh, what it uh, disdains and what it fears, etc. Once you get its a food source, uh, you can begin to watch that very arising and passing away and then no longer believe that you're a steady state, but actually see yourself as a verb. Nothing happens to you in some kind of, of revelation. It's, it's startling to see yourself as a verb, not just to see yourself as a verb, but to know yourself as a verb. Uh, that's, those are very different things. Many people have had deep samadhi experiences of seeing themselves as a verb, seeing themselves as an impermanent process of mind and body. But that's, that's very different than the realization of that fact, where it's like death. You know, all of us know we're going to die, and we've seen people die, but the realization that you are going to die and that you only have X number of days left in your life, or moments left in your life, perhaps, uh, is a different, it's a different, it shakes you in a different way. And so, too, this revelation of becoming shakes us in a different way when it is seen. And the reason I also like it is it's very um, approachable from a lay perspective. We don't have to have deep levels of, of samadhi or uh, focus in order to begin to uh, uh, flush out how this sense of me arises and how it becomes and how, it, how the egoic stance of ourselves is uh, always uh, a relevant issue within our consciousness. And, but before I want to uh, speak any more about that, I want to go back just a little bit you know, uh, all of us find our 
are uh, tools in Dharma practice to apply when we feel the inconveniences of our life. And some of us, you know, if we're irritated or we have a difficulty, we uh, say, okay, just be present to the difficulty and uh, allow it, accept it, uh, show up for it, don't judge it. We go through, we run it down, and then, you know, in a kind of desperation, we say, well, this is going to change. It just hasn't yet, but it will. Just bide your time and be patient. And there's this kind of, of adaptation response that we offer much of the inconvenience of life to get through them until we can be convenienced again. Okay? But that isn't really where the Buddha is pointing, especially in dependent origination. He's pointing to the fabrication of the experience itself. That the experience is essentially a fabrication. That it's based not on the truth of its progression from what it is to something else, but the fact that it never was what we thought it was in the first place. And if we're going to move into the central teaching of the Buddha, we have to see that point. Here's what he says that I would like to read, a nice quote. He says, talking to his monks, he says, suppose monks, a magician should hold a magic show and a keen-sighted man or woman should see it, reflect upon it, and examine it radically. Even as he or she sees it, reflects upon it, and examines it radically, he or she would find it empty. He or she would find it hollow, would find it void of essence. What essence, monks, could there be in a magic show? Even so, monks, whatever consciousness, be it past, future, or present, in oneself or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a monk sees it, reflects upon it, and examines it radically. And even as he or she sees it, reflects upon it, and examines it, he will find it empty. He will find it hollow. He will find it void of essence. What essence, monks, could there be in consciousness? You see, he's just not allowing us to stand here. He's not allowing an adaptation, an adaptive response. He's not allowing a set of sequences to better, to come and progress to betterment so that we can now relax because we've managed to be patient through the hard times. He's showing us that the hard times themselves are empty. And he's showing us at the same moment that the, the sense of me that's going through those hard times is emptiness. It's emptiness seen emptiness. It's all fabricated. It's all fabricated. There's nowhere in dependent origination that one can substantiate oneself or the world as it's being perceived. Therein lies the freedom that the Buddha is pointing to. Not in circumstantially waiting or adapting or altering or just being patient with the circumstances you're in. And that's why dependent origination in its theme is showing us that all of our perceptions, gross and subtle and all the other lists that he just quoted, are in fact insubstantial. How are they insubstantial? Let's look at how they're, what they're built upon. They're built upon an internal response, as we have already learned, that has been pulled out from us from a feeling tone we have about the incoming data. The data itself, empty in nature, is being certified, you might say, or acknowledged by consciousness as something that needs to be attended to because pleasure could be at the other end of this experience or invite me in. Or it could be a noxious experience in which I had better leave the room. But I'm getting pulled in. I'm getting my interpretation of myself and the events of life are occurring in that moment. I'm being pulled in through the feeling. Now, feelings are very subtle, and they're not my idea 
of a good reference point of where we should enter. Although for monks or people who live in a very, very quiet environment, that may be the, the perfect reference point. For me, it's that sense of myself arising from those feeling tones. And that sense of, of posturing, of, of all of a sudden the presence associating itself with a position within the, all the data that is being organized through these feeling tones. See, the feeling tones pass, pull us in, and then there's a backward response, right? So that I am feeling this. Suddenly, in that backward response, I'm projecting the feeling tone on the object of my sight that has now been organized by my memory. We know a chair because we've experienced a chair before. And so when we find a particularly comfortable chair, that feeling tone is pleasant, and we project the whole scenario of needing to go sit there based upon the knowledge that we have stored about that memory tone plus the feeling associated with it. So we come out through the feeling. We begin to organize ourselves. We get pulled out of, from nothing. From nothing we start. This is just ignorance. This is because suddenly we believe, we believe that anything that has a past must have a presence, a present and a presence, and therefore be an established something. If you have a past, which your memory will always tell us that we have, then you must be something. You've lived before, you must be living now, and you'll live in the future. And that logic is what convinces us in this vast array of emptiness to organize the data and ourselves in logical sequence to, oh, I see what I am experiencing now and thereby set the standards by which I can become. None of it based on anything substantial. Just conditions all arising within the field of ignorance. Ignorance is not seeing. Believing, but not seeing. Dharma is seeing and not believing. So when we're believing, just based upon circumstances, or because everybody else is believing that way, or because we've always believed that way, that's the definition of ignorance. And so what this is calling us to do is to look again at the process of our assumptions, how our assumptions have been formed, where our beliefs, remembering when we were talking about grasping just a couple of weeks ago, that the grasping nature forms itself into beliefs. When you grasp, when you move out of the desiring manifestation into an established belief system, we are essentially collecting an assumption about life that we hold on to as a desperate way to fix life in a certain posture. If I believe something to be true without actually seeing it, that belief fixes life and myself within that fixation. Right? So it can be about objects, it can be about me, the sense of myself, it can be about opinions or rites or rituals or all the things we talked about when we talked about grasping. The essential point, though, is that that sense of fixation that occurs, that need to establish a clear reference point from me to it, and that can only happen mentally. In fact, the entire world now has been built up from a mentally derived sense of what the world is according to my memories of it. And so if the feeling tone comes from me and is projected onto you, it all comes from me and is being projected outward. Isn't that amazing? You see, I it's an important point because here is the, div der the derivation of, of the true Dharma freedom and we so easily begin uh, to lose our footing in all of that and just want ourselves to continue on forever as an individuated person 
and we then adapt. The only thing an individuated person can do is when they feel the edges of life and the hard realities of the difficulties of life is to try to change their narrative about what's going on. And so instead of saying this story, I will change the story and alter it. So now that we're in an unaccustomed and unknown room and I'm going to have to make some adjustments. Don't like it. Much rather have my old Zafu back. But that's the way it is. And so if I can drop all that begrudgingly, that's called resignation, not acceptance. Acceptance can only manifest through the knowledge of the emptiness of life. Because you're not, there's nothing that you can't accept when everything is seen at its fabric, in its fabricated perspective. And that is the true art of surrendering. The true release, the letting go, is that you realize there's nothing ever to hold on to. Not that you have to let go because your knuckles are too tight and you're bleeding, so you're going to go from there to the next bar, but that there's essentially nothing to ever have grasped onto. That's why I lead us week after week into this topic with some degree of passion, because to me it's such, it has such an importance to it. And hopefully our homework and with your willingness and sincerity we can move together in this. Not that the revelations and realizations are going to happen particularly quickly, mostly they happen over a long period of time we grow into the Dharma. But the steering mechanism has to be there for us. If you're driving your car off on a tributary road, you can drive a long time thinking that you're you know, on the main highway because the sights are nice and you're going along, but it's that corrective ability to say, okay, wait a minute, I've stirred myself wrong here. Let me get back onto the road of emptiness here. It's this, this fabricated world that we live in, that the Buddha is asserting independent origination. He is beckoning us forward into the fact that consciousness is fabricated. Feelings are fabricated. Everything that we've talked about in all of these weeks since the beginning of the year are fabricated. And now comes the biggest fabrication of all. How can you have the biggest fabrication? Another fabrication. <laughs> That's me. Hello. <laughs> there we take the seat, you see. This is a seat that we're reluctant to have removed from under us. Now, I can talk about consciousness. Yeah, I can see it coming, you know, and things coming and the, and the different conditions that have to be met in order for me to feel conscious and the naming and forming and the mental factors and all of the feelings and the desires and all of that. I can, okay, I can kind of get a sense of that. But don't, don't take me away from myself. Don't do that. And from this nothing, because nowhere is becoming, claiming ownership. It's the set of factors that together their influence on each other collectively, from that arises the sense of me taking my center position. When you look at it, all you'll see is a collection of factors. You'll see your mental factors. You'll see your naming, your forming. You'll see your consciousness. You'll see all those things which convince you that you're dead center in, the, in life. That's, that's how we get it. We get it from all these different influences, all these different mirrors distorting truth sufficiently so that now we can claim reference to the true truth, to the true experience. You see, long since, do the factors matter anymore once we have claimed reference? We don't say, desire is desiring. But that's the truth of the situation. It's I'm desiring. 
You see? We don't give credit to the factors that are creating the sense and embodiment of me. We claim the me to be the most important centered position. And all the other factors are mine as the center control system of the mind. See? I name, I form. Now, uh, I just want, uh, want to start bringing us in to this beautiful realization of becoming. Uh, and so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to walk us through one way to begin to get a sense of how we become and to encourage, if you so wish and if you are intended in that direction, to begin to use that sense of becoming as a central feature in your own Dharma journey so that you'll begin to understand it. Now, uh, the first thing we have to realize is that we know nothing about it. You may have heard me lecture or you may have gone off somewhere else to another tradition because religions in general are all over the field on what I am. Some religions say we're nothing. Some religions say we're a self with a capital S. Some religions say we have a soul. Some religions say we have none. Sounds like the five piggies or four piggies or however many. <laughs> wee, wee, wee. I'm waiting for the wee, wee, wee. <laughs> so the best we can do, the best we can do is to be opinionless. Just to say, I don't know about this. Okay, You see why that's important? Because as soon as we have an opinion relating to last talk on grasping, one of the central features of grasping is the opinionation process from which grasping becomes defined. As soon as we have an opinion, especially about ourselves, then we, that opinion forms ourselves in the very reaching for that certainty of our position. So this gets tricky, right? So now I say, I have an opinion. I know, I know what I am. I'm nothing. Great. You're something when you say that. Do you realize that? <laughs> I didn't realize that. That's why you never hear somebody say, I'm awake. You don't hear it. That's incongruent. Because to say that is the epitome of ignorance. You see? So you would get a sense of how we have to navigate our disposition, our posturing, our understanding through this labyrinth, really, of in maze. It's a maze. So I come to the place where I don't really know. But if I look at myself, if I just hold myself, I can say, you know, that here's what I know about me. And I can give you the list of qualities that I have. I can give you my history. And it seems to have all started when I got a name. The name sort of placed me in discrete formation to other people around me. It gave me a unique set of credentials, which I have embellished over the years. We can say this. I know this about myself. I know you know this about yourself. And as those embellishing qualities begin to look at other names on either side of us, we begin to evaluate our name as opposed to Sue that's beside me and taking the same test. So we grow often in relationship to our evaluation of someone else. So we grow relative to how we see and hold other people, thinking that if other people are like this and I'm not as good or better than, then that are, those are my credentials. And a narrative starts forming around those, that credentialing process. And it starts becoming elaborate and lengthy and involved 
all projected, all fabricated, everything fabricated. Even the supposed identity within the name. Everything relative to how we perceive and project what someone else next to us is doing. All circumstantial, as if we knew what someone else was thinking about us or we about them, but it all seems to make a coherent narrative within us. Seems very clear, doesn't it? What someone else is thinking about you. <laughs> and the circumstances of our life. You see, I just... You, here's the importance of knowing that it's all fabricated. When you sense that, the truth of that, there's a revelation that occurs. You say, my God, my story is meaningless. It seems to mean something because it gives me a sense of where I've come from and where I'm going. It gives me a sense of being here for a reason. Having come through this adventure called life to arrive here, we can give the details in photographs or in journals, but mostly in memory, about how it is that I came to this spot. But it's a coherent narrative that gives us that, all of which were projected and assumed from the standpoint of this positionality in my mind with incomplete data and an awful lot of ignorance of not seeing of suppositions and assumptions. And as you take any of these things back and just start looking at it, it falls apart. You can't hold something that's been fabricated, scrutinize it, and expect it to remain fabricated. It becomes unfabricated. It becomes empty. It dissolves. If you just take any quality in you, any position you're taking, any opinion you have, any grasping tendency, and just look at it. It falls apart. It doesn't hold itself up. It doesn't substantiate itself. It can't convince you that you need to form yourself around it when it's observed, when it is seen, when it is known. And it's because of that that we can get out of this mess. But you have to want to do that. You have to be encouraged to do that in yourself. You have to encourage that process. You have to be interested in that process. And I can't say this enough, that if you're not, nothing will happen. Just simply nothing will happen. You'll come to these. You'll do adaptive responses because you'll be listening through an adaptive ear as if the adaptive ear was the correct ear of your position. And the only response that an adaptive, fabricated being can give to a response is one that's fabricated. You see, it's all, you just get a sense of how this thing ties us in knots. So, we have to look at our story. I mean, it just falls apart. It's not even, it can't, you can't even keep it going, you can't even pretend to keep it going when you look at it. So as this stuff starts sloughing up, as the snow person, snowman, snow woman, as the snow person melts, you've got to be correct in your speech these days. <laughs> you see what? It's like, okay, come on now. Let's freeze it back. Let's get something here. I want some rub. I want a form. A form needs a form. If I'm going to claim myself, I need something to claim myself as, as I am, as a form. I can't claim myself as a nothing, right? So what do I do to keep myself formed? I stay in movement. If I stay in movement, I'm going somewhere. 
And so the idea of time substantiates me. If I believe in time, if I believe in the future, then I've had a past and I've got a present and I'm moving through that in a three-dimensional, logical way in a clear and linear path to wherever I'm headed. And that belief in time gives me credibility as a person. Do you see that? This can be seen. This can be understood. This can be realized if you want to. And when you see that, but when you ask the question, you see the, the, it falls apart. When you say, but what is time? Well, I don't really know. Do you? I really don't know. In fact, the physicists don't know. I've been trying to find an answer to this, but even somebody even sent me a book on time. I read the damn thing, and I still can't tell you what it is. <laughs> Nobody really knows what it is. Yet it's at the centerpiece of our definition. And when you look at it from an aware point of view, you see that it's entirely mentally derived. And so the sense of I that follows time must also be centrally mentally derived, a mental derived sense of self, as one spiritual teacher calls it. But we have to stay in movement to convince ourselves that we are real. And stay in movement we do. How do we stay in movement? Through desire and fear. See, now we're looking at the, what we've got on our bookshelf we can pull down and quickly use for food. Remember, we've got links in this dependent origination. We've got food on the table, to change metaphors real quick, <laughs> that we can eat. Desire and grasping and name and form and mental factors and... We've got all this spread on the table. <clears throat> so if we get scared, we'll go into the desire mode and that'll show us true and where we are or fear because what does desire say? Desire says it's, it forces us into a, a position of insufficiency because you wouldn't desire something if you felt complete, would you? You wouldn't have any need to be des desiring if you felt complete. So... In order to have a desire, you must feel insufficient. But the desire says that the end of the insufficiency is through desire, when desire itself is creating the insufficiency. Bells should be going off here. <laughs> <laughs> this very thing that I'm using for my, the completion and resolution of my insufficiency is causing me to feel incomplete in the beginning. Wait a minute. Again, the snowman person is melting. It's melting, and we can't keep it going, not when you start looking, not when you're willing to challenge the ignorance. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Everywhere I look, I see this thing melting in front of me. That's why I love this becoming, because you can't get away from it unless you just decide you don't want to see it. And then you can get away from it very easily because that's what we've been doing our whole life is not looking. But if we want to look, it's all there. And the very basis of our formation as a person in movement, in time, uses the very qualities of mind that are fabricated in order to convince itself of the true nature of time, fabricated, though it may be, and there substantiate ourselves on the back of this desire and fear. All fabricated. That should at least get our attention. You see? This should at least create some seriousness here. This is not, we're no longer able to smile it away. This is, this is down-to-earth stuff. And I also realize that as long as I'm in movement, I can survive because in movement means that I'm following the narrative because the only thing that moves in us is the narrative. 
There's nothing else that moves in us. So as I'm telling a story, the story feels as if it's a linear relationship of me in time. If I stop the narrative, I can't move. Do you see what I mean by movement? I mean mental movement. Not physical movement. And therefore I'm scared to death of stopping. I don't want to stop. Let me keep studying this. Let me keep understanding it. Let me keep myself in motion. Let me keep generating a deeper, more relished journey, spiritual or otherwise. Let me stay on a journey. What is a journey? It's a movement. A seeking. See? See how serious we have to be now? Because now we're going to resolve movement. It's not for the light of heart. How do you resolve movement when all we know ourselves to be is movement? And why would I ever want to do that anyway? Because it's not true. Because whenever I look at movement, it falls flat. The snow person melts. That's why I do it. If it were true, I would just use it and move on. Why not? But if I keep looking and I don't see any basis of credibility for what I'm running on, or the motivation for why I'm running, or the definitions I'm giving to that running, then, my friends, we have a problem. And so I risk everything by stopping. Because it's true. I can't argue with stopping. Stopping has no alternative. It doesn't manufacture anything. It's not a fabrication. It's an arresting of fabrication. It's like the story of the young five-year-old child that goes to his mother and says, Mom, picture yourself surrounded by tigers and you have no weapons. What would you do? And the mother says, my God, I don't know what I would do. What would you do? And the five-year-old son says, I'd stop imagining. <laughs> so we're at that place where we, have, we can't move. We can't move because everywhere we have moved and we have are really attend to what we're doing, it's, it's insignificant, it's fabricated. It just doesn't have any reality to it. So we stop. Not in frustration, not because we should stop, not because he said to stop, but because it's the only thing I can do that has some truth to it. You see? So it's the love of that truth. It's the love of truth that gets us to stop. See how it comes all the way around. No one's to blame for the mess we're in. Not in the sense that we did this deliberately and maliciously. We just got lost in the assumptions of life, in the concepts, in the beliefs in the culturization, in the socialization. We never ask questions, the most serious questions. The questions we were told to ask in school were the most superficial questions. But now we're asking ourselves because we cannot move anymore. What is it now? What is this moment? And the sense of incompletion, which has been instilled through desire, through movement, comes to a complete arrest. 
We could care less about that. We see that it was generated by mental suppositions, substantiated and engendered and endured by fabrication. And I have nothing more I can offer that. No more energy. Now I have nowhere to turn. I can't go left. I can't turn right. What to sins when we have nowhere to turn? I mean nowhere to turn. Not back on the thought that I have nowhere to turn. That's turning somewhere. This is the end of that process. And the beginning of a true life. Thanks, everybody. So maybe we could just sit for a minute or two. The question I like to ask is, do we need time to find ourselves? For some, it does. I'm not claiming that there isn't a process involved in stopping, as paradoxical as that seems. We have to reclaim ourselves. We have to reclaim the tortured parts of ourselves. We have to understand that we were never at fault here, that it was circumstantial, that it was ignorance moving itself. And we claimed reference to the profound madness that we endured. There's a greater question, though. Do I have to keep claiming reference to my history? Does it make sense to explore our history, to understand the nature of me? Does it give me anything besides more detail and narrative? The universe of wonder is that close. So if there are any questions or comments, I'd be happy to. Could you define freedom for me? Say again. Could you define freedom? Could I define freedom? Well, the way I've been using it tonight is full consciousness, full awareness, okay. the, the uprooting of ignorance, okay. right? Mm-hmm. So, there, so that everything is known. Hmm? That we're not moving from the mechanics of life, from the habituations or conditioned tendencies of life. You look stunned. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so she's reacting to this word emptiness. Fair enough. It's not an easy word. And because why? 
let me take you there because we're projecting our narrative upon the word. How could we possibly know what emptiness was? In fact, all we would know is what our memory tells us it is. And I remember being empty one time and being starved, or I remember being empty and being left alone, or I remember being empty and not having anything to do. All of the ways that we suppose emptiness from our childhood or from our adult, adult preconceptions is what we place upon that word. So it doesn't work for very many people. And because it's, it's, it's like every word, it becomes contaminated with our references. And emptiness certainly does. So that's why I flip it over. I say, how about life? How about the fullness of life? Nothing, everything in life as we perceive it is fabricated. So when we're talking about the life, the real life, then we're talking about not what necessarily we see as opposed to what we don't. It's life in its totality. Right? Life in its totality. Okay, so you could say it's God if you're of that vintage. Or you could say what you could we could say fullness of heart or vitality or richness of spirit or I don't know, I mean there's so many ways that you can uplift yourself with that word rather than let the word defeat you. I mean, you know, we, we keep asserting, you know, that if I don't exist, then it's like being negated or being dismissed or being denied or ignored. See, all that just comes flooding in. So why would I ever want to understand my intrinsic emptiness if it's just going to mean everybody ignores me? I've had enough of that. That's why we have to work with the pains of our life in order to come to the position where we can move, not from that pain, but from a deeper sense of yearning, despite the projection that word may still hold. But we're no longer governed by the neurotic response we have within that word that keeps us from the journey forward. Do you see? So, in other words, if I feel that selflessness means what it was when I was young and ignored by everybody in my family, I have to deal with the neurosis and the upheaval of that early childhood experiences to reach a stability where I'll go into that word despite the continuing effects it might have of early childhood belief. You see? And at some point you do become strong enough. You say, it's not about that. It must be something more than that, or who would ever have gone there? Why would anybody proclaim it? And it's only because people are daring enough to venture forth that this ever gets resolved. Because we all have the projection of what selflessness means or emptiness means or whatever. We all have that projection, especially in this culture. is becoming a part of dependent origination. Yes, it is. It's the sense of I arising is becoming. We're becoming, and I love the fact, as I mentioned early, that it's, it's a process of becoming. It's not, it doesn't say, you know, being. Being is more, right? It depends on what your definitions of that word are. But for someone who has an ego, they'd love to be all the time. You know, I'll go to that word. Right? So we project, we project something substantial onto being. I'll be. But that's fabrication. Being isn't what we think being is. Nothing is what we think it is. That's what fabrication means. We've given it our own definition and made it something from our definition. Nothing is what it seems to be. Okay, but you have an idea about that and an opinion. Okay, if it's an experience, then you don't have to talk about it, do you? You don't have to claim reference to it. 
You can just let it be. Right? It's when you start proclaiming it that it becomes a grasping. It forms itself into opinion. We should all be. Let's be. Let's be. Don't, you know. What's the matter with you? Can't you be? <laughs> I've had enough of bees and bed bugs. <laughs> Last a lifetime. Yes, Emily. Okay, so it, it sounds, it, it sounds like a should to me, how you're framing this. Oh, okay. So I'll just ask a question. Yeah. So basically, sometimes in sitting practice, Sure, yes. So, how that fits into what you said about stop moving, sometimes I feel like actually moving and engaging is like Yes, so I, absolutely. So, she's talking about physical movement and how physical movement can help with seeing the stillness of mental non movement. Those are not the same thing. <clears throat> In Zen, they say, see the stillness and movement and the movement and stillness. Okay? So, even as you're moving, there can be quiet. See, the body moves itself. The thought that we are the governing person that's doing this thing is a fabrication. It's an, a set of ideas we have about it. Watch, I can show. See? I can raise my hand. Right? Doesn't that prove something? <laughs> Seems to. <laughs> More about that later. Okay, all. So thank you for your attention tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.